Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We've been in a series that we're destined to be in for eternity, um, entitled uh, The Challenge of a Biblical Worldview. Um, Fifty-some percent of the Americans identify as Christian, but only six percent have a biblical worldview, which means there's only six percent of those that would say that reincarnation is not real, or that the Bible is actually the Word of God, or things of that nature. So we're trying to lay a baseline down for that. And today is, we've been doing subsections, today is the first of what will be two parts only, uh, until the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, It is basically going to be a study of heaven and hell and uh, the end of time and how that works out. To begin with this, I need to read you a passage of scripture. And um, I'm not sure it's better received while standing, but, but if you would, at least for the reading of this word and focus in, it's kind of intense, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 9, 1 through 9. For there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, speaking about Old Testament, now New Testament. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Then he goes to a period of of, of contrast. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but then sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Father, I pray that you would adjust our thinking today and tune our hearts and our minds to your word. Guide us in this conversation, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, that has got to be one of the more cuddly passages of scriptures you're going to find. I mean, it's just contrasting all those are going to be burning in hell and all those that are going to be restored and rescued and uh, kind of uh, pushes things around a bit on that. We are discussing a theology, if you will, or a doctrine of hell as well as of heaven. There are those who no longer believe that hell exists and a biblical view would hold a theology or belief in hell and in heaven. Um, We don't talk about this much, uh, but it's critical that we do discuss it. 
Some people are uncomfortable discussing this. Some people get even irritated about discussing things like this. There's a little girl in a class one time, and the teacher was discussing whales and about how their throats are too, swall- too small to swallow an entire human being. And a um, little girl stated, well, Jonah was swallowed, though, by a whale. And the teacher was irritated by this, and she reiterated, reiterated that it's just impossible for uh, a whale to, in fact, swallow a person. The little girl's response was, well, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. And the teacher's response is, what if Jonah went to hell? Well, in that case, you can ask him, she said. (laughs) Some people are irritated by the very conversation. (laughs) Um, As we get into looking at this, there has been tons written about or artistically expressed from Dante's Inferno to Milton to a whole string of other uh, poems, writings, uh, paintings. One of, I think, the most significant, though, upon this subject is one that I saw years ago in Paris, and you've seen, I'm sure, maybe even have one on the edge of your desk. Um, it's Rodin's uh, The Thinker. And there's a, in the museum in Paris, it's off a little side street. You wouldn't even recognize the museum's there if you weren't directed to it. But on its grounds, it has a a quite a large, this is a quite large item sitting on a pedestal way up. And then, I don't know, it's got to be at least 15 feet high or so like that. And this is the classic that people have. You'll have it in, you'll see it in in academics and intellectuals um, uh, studies, you know, the thinker, you know. And you got to look here and think after all these years, you wonder, What's he thinking about? You know? Well, the reality is we actually know what he's thinking about because while this is a larger piece that was blown up because it became so popular in certain ways and iconic, the original was actually part of a much larger work that's on the grounds um, out in a courtyard area. It's an open air and uh, quite large and quite high. And this piece rests in the middle of it. And this entire work that Rodin did is entitled The Gates of Hell. And what you cannot see, hopefully to some degree where you're at, is all the bodies that are around that are in tortured um, torment that is hell and the demons and the horror of it and all the ugliness of it. And right at the top of this gate, in the center of it, is the thinker. So what is the thinker thinking about? The thinker is contemplating a life separated from God. He's contemplating hell and what that is going to be like. It's important that we think about this, that we consider this. How do we consider this? Some churches in some places, even that I grew up in, um, and others, you'll hear someone talking about hell in such a way as to drive terror in everyone's heart, which is not an inappropriate fear to have, but they seem to do it in such a self-righteous factor that uh, it almost a delight in torturing people. Um, it has been said that D.L. Moody, a pastor of years ago, was the only one who spoke effectively on hell, because he would find himself weeping um, every time he addressed it. There was an element of compassion or concern, not of arrogance, like we're in and you're out, or that type of thing. And even for those who are in, we're in by God's grace, not by anything that we've done. When we get into this down the line, 
we begin to wonder and say, okay, well, you know, hell's all good and fine, but that really sounds like an Old Testament type of thing. And certainly Jesus, you know, would never ever really, I mean, Jesus loves us. He's our buddy. He's our pal. He's the, he's the guy who just takes care of me. Jesus actually spoke more about hell probably than practically anyone else that you'll find in Scripture. In fact, many of the words we have about hell are straight from Jesus' lip, and they are lips, and they are a living warning to us. The reason Jesus talked about hell is because he didn't want people to go there. The reason he died is so we wouldn't have to go there. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. And so let's delve into that for a moment. This passage we just talked about, Second Peter, which I won't spend any more time on, I think it's dark enough, and it shows that even angels were condemned, even others have been condemned, all this other thing, and then there's those that are rescued. But maybe you slide past that and say, well, the first part of this is talking about false prophets and false teachers. Yeah, it is, but it's common people in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's common people in the ancient world. It's, it's common people that are addressed throughout it as well, too. Um, Jesus actually in Matthew chapter 25 goes on a fairly lengthy uh, exposition on um, people who are followers of him and those that weren't. He refers to them as the sheep and the goats and how the sheep are his and the goats are not and how at the end of time they're going to come towards him and he's going to in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 it says he'll say to those on his left depart from me for me, you who are accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All the goats will veer off to the left. In um, Lewis's work, uh, The Last Battle of, in, in Narnia, as Aslan stands here, all the animals come towards him, and those who look at him and have not served, have, 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 have pursued other choices, instantly lose the ability to, of speech and become dumb animals, and they go off to the left into his shadow and disappear. And those who are uh, righteous come to the right and there's a look of love that flows into their face. In Matthew chapter 25, later in verse 46, he says, then they'll go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous, eternal, to eternal life. This is Jesus that's speaking these words out and expressing it. Um, in fact, he talks quite a bit, and I'm not going to go through all the passages, but there was something unique in Jesus' language. He used a specific word for hell, and the word was Gehenna. And Gehenna referred to a valley that was just on the side of the mountain that Jerusalem was on. Now, some of the passages he uses, for example, is Matthew 5, 29. It's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. But the phrase there in the original language is Gehenna. Um, in Matthew 10, 28, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Don't fear people and what they're going to say about you. Fear the one who could destroy your soul and body in hell or in Gehenna. Um, uh, it goes on to a very, he talks to the Pharisees and hypocrites and, and uh, how shall you escape the sentence of Gehenna. Um, better if you enter the kingdom of God with one eye in Mark 9, 47 and Luke 12, 5. It goes on and on and on. And so he uses this phrase over and over again and he speaks about hell a lot. Strange for cuddly, nice, sweet Jesus. But that's what he addresses it. Not because he's angry or wants to harm us, but again, he wants to rescue us and he needs us to show us from what we're being rescued from. Now, why would he have used the term Gehenna as a illustration of hell? As I said, Gehenna was a valley that would rest on the side of, of Jerusalem. And in ancient days, in Old Testament times, when the Jews fell away from following God, 
then they got involved in, in a really horrible thing called child sacrifice, and it was particularly a god named Moloch that was of the Canaanites. And uh, Moloch would be a, a fashion god of metal, and they'd superheat the metal and then lay the baby on top of the golden arms or so and have them die in that horrible fashion. And this happened in the Valley of Gehenna. And so it's known for its bloody sacrifice, for its pagan ways. It was the stench of flesh, and it was pretty horrific. Now, in the time of Jesus, the people had really understood that they weren't to follow foreign gods. They got one thing right, Hero is the Lord our God is one, and, and there is no other. So they no longer did child sacrifice. But this valley still became a place like a, an active garbage dump. And so they would constantly be burning refuse down there and, and garbage and different things of that nature. Dead animals, they just toss it over the side and toss it in the valley down there. Criminals, people who, who had done horrific issues and nobody wanted to claim their body and put them in a tomb as was proper out of respect for that body because the Jews never burned. They respected the body and, and did, did handle it differently. But criminals, those who are outcasts, who had no one to care for them, they threw those over the side into the valley of Gehenna. And so this valley of Gehenna became a pretty filthy, disgusting, sewage-filled, maggots, worms crawling through the waste, and, and kind of all sorts of repellent things and repulsive stuff. If the wind shifted just right on a certain day and it would drift over the city, then you just have this horrible stench. So when Jesus was trying to capture people's attention and sit there and say, listen, there is a hell, there is a a, a a judgment that's coming. It will be similar to Gehenna. And they look over the edge there, the wind had just shifted a bit. Then I'm like, wow, that's hell? No, that's an illustration though of what hell would be like. If you want another illustration or understanding of hell a little more relevant, then talk to any current season ticket holder of the Lions and they'll give you a perspective on that. And so when it comes to hell, Jesus talks about it, and this is why he goes on in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those that enter by it are many. He says, come in by a narrow gate. Not everyone's going to, to, to be coming in. It's not an easy way to go. It's a, it's a difficult, challenging way to go. But it's better than the alternative that's being offered. He went on, Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, he says, throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he gives an illustration here. In other places, it talks about hell being a place of torment, of outer darkness, of eternal punishment, of being a prison, of being a place where fire continues on forever and ever. And the scripture makes clear that unlike what we're being told oftentimes in our culture and, and, and things today, there is no second chance there is no way to work out of that. We have driven this life now, and we make choices in this life now. And one choice leads to heaven, and the other one leads to hell. Now, whenever I'd read this passage when I was younger, you know, Blazing Furnace, it was the weeping. And weeping was always associated with the gnashing of teeth. And I never understood that. Mashing potatoes, I get. Gnashing of teeth, I don't understand that. Gnashing is used several places. It's always equipped with or attached to weeping or regret. Gnashing of teeth is like the grinding of your teeth. It's like when you're in great pain or hurt. Or you go, the lion's lost again. You know, and you have that sense about it. 
or you're visiting your mother-in-law, whoever it may be that you have. Mother-in-laws are great people, okay? Gnashing of teeth means that gritting of the teeth. It means a sense of, 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 of pain and misery and anguish and struggle. And this is equipped, or equated rather, with hell. That there's a sense of regret. There's a sense of being on the outside. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. It means to be alienated from God. So there's this place of torture and struggle. There's actually a, a vivid illustration offered again by Jesus, and, and he offers a lot of different ones that he talks about, the kingdom of heaven, and there's a feast where a lot of people are going to come, but others are thrown into outer darkness, parable of, of the weeds, they're all tossed into a furnace, um, <coughs> the guest who comes late and they're tossed into darkness, and servants and all this stuff. But, but one of the more specific, I think, ones that stands out the most is a parable that Jesus talks about and it involves a guy named Lazarus, not the one he raises from the dead, separate guy, evidently kind of a common name in those days. And Lazarus is this poor beggar that seems to be um, sitting on the outside of a, of a street of the house of a very wealthy man. And this wealthy guy has all sorts of stuff, but he evidently was not a pursuer of the things of God. And so according to the parable that Jesus shares, he talks about how when the beggar dies, that the angels carried him to Abraham's side. He goes to heaven in essence. The rich man also dies and is buried. But he's in this separated place of torment, <coughs> excuse me, in difficulty and, and, and darkness. At one point in time, he looks up and sees Abraham far away and sees Lazarus. So here's a horrifying thought. There's a, a total consciousness in hell as well as in heaven. And he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Jesus is saying this as an actual illustration of something that, that appears to have happened. Abraham replies, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus had tough things. Now he's comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from, from there to us. Back up one minute and realize this gives the lie, incidentally, to, to one of the prosperity doctrinal issues is that wealth is an indicator of God's favor upon you. And, and, and if you're truly following God, you'll be wealthy and healthy and wise and all that rest. This man's wealthy but he's in hell, which does not mean that wealthy people go to hell. Wealthy and poor alike do. It doesn't have anything to do your, your financial status one way or the other on that. So escape that out of your mind. So he says at this point in time, look, we can't cross. There's a gulf between us and nothing can separate us and there's no way to get across on this. And so then the guy sits here and says, look, at, then, then I've got five brothers. If you'll send Lazarus to them and warn them, I don't want them to end up in here too. There's some sense of compassion still in this broken soul. And Abraham's response to that is this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. They wouldn't. But if the man from the dead comes... They'll, they'll listen to that. And he says, even if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if someone rises up from the dead. 
And so the, the possibility of a, of, a, of, a, of a Jacob Marley Scrooge moment doesn't happen. And they're saying it won't happen. If we don't listen to the prophets, if we're not listening to Scripture, if we're not hearing the words that are even said here today, and that doesn't resonate in our soul to move us towards an understanding of the things and the pursuit of the things of God, then he's saying even someone coming back from the dead will rationalize that away somehow on some way or another. As we said in this passage in Thessalonians, hell at its core is a separation of relationship from God on the molecular level. We all experience some sense of common grace in this world. But in hell, we're completely separated from that. In other words, we all have, have some element of, of God's presence here that we encounter in, in, in even the interactions that we have with, with nature or with one another. And that's not to say God is in those. God stands distinct, but his grace moves through that. But in hell, all that's removed. Any sense of goodness, anything of delight, anything of pleasure, anything. So we've removed and separated on a molecular level. It's a terrifying thing. We don't even understand what little overflow we get from God's grace even when we're not in relationship directly with him. But it becomes stark in that moment of time. When we look at the idea of this torturous, eternal element of hell, and it has been said that the one principle of hell is, I am my own. That, again, I make the choices at least, I decide. The reality is we choose hell. Cousins send us there. And we'll talk about that in just a second as we go along. But keep that in your mind. There is now, in contrast to that, a view of heaven. As we said, we've got the good and the bad. Actually, it's the bad of hell. And the good of heaven is the contrasting. Any biblical worldview has to include both. The idea of judgment and the idea that these two places re- exist in reality. But our view of heaven is kind of messed up, especially in this country. New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks um, takes issue a bit with Mitch Albom. Now, I, I've never met Mitch Albom, but I really like his writing, and I, I like him. And a number of our people here actually have had direct involvement with Mitch, have worked closely alongside him, and they tell me he's a great guy, and I think that's true. I, I like Mitch a lot, and it's great. But Brooks takes an effort or takes a um, uh, problem with him over a couple of books, for example. He wrote Tuesdays with Maury and Five People That You Meet in Heaven. And Brooks says this, he says that we should be cautious of Album's soft-core spirituality and easygoing narcissism. The eternal reward picture in Album's book is different than the biblical one. He says, quote, In this heaven, God and his glory are not the center of attention. It's all about you. Here sins are not washed away. Instead, hurt is washed away. The language of good and evil is replaced by the language of trauma and recovery. And it's part of this moralistic, um, theistic uh, deism that comes into play, therapy. And so we tend to want to feel good and, and, and try to act good, and then God only gets involved in the way that we want him to get involved. It's not the way that heaven is actually portrayed in Scripture. Others view it as a type of of boring, floating in the clouds, playing on harps, singing hymns all the time. One of my favorite authors of times past was Isaac Asimov. Um, He was both a scientist and a writer, so he was back when science fiction was truly about science and not about fantasy as much. But Asimov had a perspective that didn't include God. 
and had this attitude about heaven. He wrote once, I don't believe in the afterlife um, at all. He says, for whatever the tortures of hell, he says, actually, he says, I, I fear heaven even more than hell, if I really believed in any of them. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. And so he has this imagery that heaven is this incredibly boring, I don't understand it. A recent writer, Sean uh, um, McDowell, who uh, works in apologetics and with young people, wrote in a book recently, said, um, I recently asked my students what they would do if they had only three days left to live before they died and went to heaven. Three days left to live before they died and go to heaven. How would they spend those few remaining days? The answers, he said, included skydiving, traveling, surfing, and, of course, having sex. They're college students. I followed up with a simple question. He said, so you think there may be pleasures and experiences in this life that if you don't do them before you die, you will miss out on altogether because they won't exist in heaven? There's something so wonderful about this life and so incredible that they don't grab it now that when you go to heaven, you're going to be missing out? All but two of the students answered yes. The prospect of heaven dismayed and even disappointed them. This is the mixed up view that we tend to hold in regards to heaven and especially in contrast to hell. And so in our messed up society, hell's the place where the great party is going on, not a place of torment, burning, isolation, separation from God, and profound regret, and don't forget gnashing of teeth. And heaven is this incredibly bland, boring, everyone wearing white, sitting on puffy clouds. But the word heaven's found 276 times in the New Testament alone. There's a one point in time where it refers to three heavens, like John is carried up to the third heaven when he talks about heaven. The first heaven was always viewed as the sky. The second heaven is viewed as the interstellar where the stars and the planets and everything else exist. The third heaven is to be the dwelling place of God. It's the place where God dwells. And if you look into Revelations and other passages of Scripture throughout that we can examine, we find it's like the Garden of Eden restored. There's a river of life. There's, there's all sorts of incredible beauty and, and, and fantastic views of things. Is it exactly a location or a place? There doesn't seem to be anything like that. The New Testament focuses on the purpose of heaven and who is there instead of telling us exactly what it's like or where it is. Hell is a place of separation and punishment. Heaven, on the other hand, is a place of fellowship and eternal joy and, more importantly, worshiping around the throne of God forever. And again, people can get a wrong impression of what that means as well. Hell is we've defined, but heaven is a place of no mores. There'll be no more tears, we're told. In Revelations chapter 21, verse 4, for he'll wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. There are those who understand the realm of physics and have come up with various theories of, 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 of molecules and, 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 and energy states that, that, that have believed and offer the idea that is accepted now that there can be multiple worlds within the span of what we have here that we don't perceive because they're just slightly out of phase or with a different frequency, which would explain tons of things that perhaps heaven is not so much a different location as it is a change of frequency and a shift to a different plane. 
heaven and hell and our understanding of what it is. There was a book that Lewis wrote. And again, Lewis is not, you know, an apostle or a disciple, but he lived close to our time frame, and he had a particularly brilliant insight on things. And in this book, one of my favorite of his that he wrote, it's entitled The Great Divorce, and it has nothing to do with marital relationships. The Great Divorce has to do with the separation between heaven and hell, or as he would refer to it as, the divorce between heaven and hell. And he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can, no longer, when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no one left, uh, there will be no you, rather, left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And he offers in this book... Um, this idea of, of, of a bus station in hell and this gray, drab, tiny world where people are lined up to go for an excursion and many of them drop out of the line because it takes so long but eventually the one character that's being tracked gets on the bus and then the bus drives and then takes off and you realize it's going up and it goes through a, what you realize later is just a tiny crack and as it comes out and it comes into heaven And so hell is just this tiny, insignificant thing way down and small and gray and drab. But as they come up into heaven, it is more vivid and real and intense than anything possible. But they're wraiths. They're like ghost-like characters. In other words, decades of choices and decisions have taken them out of their humanity and made them unpalatable for heaven. They're just shadows of who they are. And as they come out into the heaven that exists, everything is so stark, so profound, so real, so vivid, that the grass is like pointy little stakes that they step upon, that if it rains, it'd be like bullets that would go right through them. Everything is so bright and vivid and intense. And for a season of time, various characters try to convince them to release their sin and enter into the fullness of heaven. Again, Lewis isn't going by a theological precision here. You're not going to have that chance, just so we're clear. There are no buses in, in, in hell, okay? I'll leave that one alone. The thing is, is each one of them refused to take hold of the trap, to release the, the, the sins that have trapped them. They don't take responsibility for their behavior. They don't see the roots of their problem. Their relentless delusion is the same as of our culture today, that if they glorified God, that they would somehow lose their human greatness. The same thing of the Garden of Eden, that somehow if we pursue the things of God and submit, that we can't become gods ourselves, we can't claim the fullness of what we want. Hell, Lewis says, is the greatest monument to human freedom. We choose... And in choosing our own way, we become something that is not fit for heaven. I mentioned this before. I want to read it in its fullness now. In the Way of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, he writes, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. 
It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And he concludes by saying, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal before. And so God works on us and he's shaping us because our ultimate location is either heaven or hell. Michelangelo had um, a significant piece of work. It was to be one of his masterpieces. He worked on it for 10 years. And um, it was to be his final work. It never saw the light of day. Giorgio Vasari, a contemporary Michelangelo, wrote that Michelangelo, quote, ended up breaking the block the, the, the marble for the sculpture, probably because it was full of impurities and so hard that sparks flew from under his chisel as he pounded on it. The sculpture was later rescued by a servant, and it survives to this day. It bears the marks of Michelangelo's chisel, but none of the beauty of his earlier work. What happened, we can ask him this. Well, there's another sculptor named Lorenzo Dominguez once summarized the dilemma and unpredictability of working with stone. He said this, quote, the stone wants to be stone. The artist wants it to be art. The same dilemma exists for us today. We want to be what we want to be. We want our own freedom. We want to make our decisions, our choices. The stone wants to be stone. But the artist wants to create art. God chips away at us day by day, moment by moment, trying to bring out the beauty of Christ within us, the image of God established in the garden. And in doing so, as we move to that incredible magnificence in the freedom God gives us, we move our way into heaven. But those of us who resist that, as the sparks fly and we insist upon maintaining stone and there's nothing that can be drawn out of that, there's a point in time where God will let stone be stone or in Lewis's concept, fading into almost nothingness so that the drabness and darkness and isolation of hell is a relief compared to being in heaven. And so he comes to the conclusion that there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, go ahead and have it your way. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I make the decision and choices. Hell is the absence of any relationship with God. Heaven is the full presence of God. I wish I could give you some illustration. And the closest thing I can come to is what a writer put it this way. These lands we walk in now, these relationships we have, these passions that we engage are shadows of the true reality of heaven. Strike from your mind the idea of harps and white clouds and the blandness of, of whatever has been thrust into your brain. If these are the shadow lands, if these are whatever the most intense emotion, experience, relationship that we can have are shadows of what heaven is like, then you need to understand 
The beauty of that, the intensity of that. If at the center of, of hell is an emptiness and the lack of God's presence, but at the center of heaven is the presence of God, oh, think of the most powerful personality you've ever encountered and how they energize you, how they brought the best to you, how you were raptured just being around them. This is God. And in the center of that, the most powerful, incredible being in the world, the personality of that alone that will light up the universe. And so as we come out of the shadow lands, these intense moments, and we come and we realize, oh, we had no idea. The beauty, the power, the colors, the range and the spectrum of sights and sounds that, that we only dully tasted in this place. And we ourselves, the stone falling away and becoming what God intended us to be. And so we find in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, as we conclude this, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more weeping. That there'll be no more death or mourning. That there'll be no crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Greatest thing that you can imagine, there'll be no lighting issues. There'll be no sound issues. There will be no more child issues or parent issues or work conflicts or that bone that creaks when it snows outside, which it's doing right now. That all these things have passed. No more loss of those that we care for. But the verse just before this one, 24-4, is the verse 3. And it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be their God. I fear hell. It is a place of darkness and devastation and separation that is unbelievable. But I so long for heaven. And the thing that I find that I long for the most is maybe something that you can also identify with today. And that's simply this. If you're going to have a biblical worldview, it needs to include a view and understanding of hell that is biblical and that it exists. And a biblical view of heaven that it is real and that it exists. And that we are ultimately destined for one or for the other. That is the embracing of a biblical worldview. We can argue the details of that, but that is a biblical worldview embraced by Protestant, Orthodox, or Catholic. But when we reach that place, the old order's passed, the shadowlands have faded away. And we come into this brilliant point. And the alienation that we have felt all our lives, that, that, that separate isolation that for every single be- human being somehow isolates us from every other human being, not just God, but even other relationships. And all that alienation, all that sense of wandering and lostness that we've carried our whole life suddenly falls away in a moment. And finally, 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 you are home on a deep level that we can't even begin to comprehend through which all other homes 
come nowhere close. Father, this morning in this place, I pray and lift up those who have not yet embraced you. I pray, Lord, that the, that the, the fear of hell, yes, would absolutely terrify them. And I pray, Lord, that there be something in this time here that would prompt them, not just out of the fear, though, but also out of the longing for you to repent and to come alongside you. Lord, for those of us who have already done that, and we're nothing special, but somewhere in our lives, you have alerted us and awakened us to our own sin, and you've drawn us into your presence. Lord, we not only thank you for that, we walk humbly, broken in the awareness of it. And in these shadow lands, I pray, Lord, we'd have the strength to continue to stand strong until such time as finally, finally,